Last week we directed your attention to the first half of verse 1 of chapter 10 of Romans, and today I want to look at the second half. Last week it was my heart's desire is that they might be saved, and today I want to talk about my prayer to God is that they might be saved. And the first question we need to ask is who's they? Who is the they that he's praying for? And I think all of you could answer that very easily. It's it's Israel. It's his kinsmen according to the flesh. You can see that coming out of verses 30 uh, to 31 uh, of the preceding chapter. And you can see it in verse 2 of this chapter uh, where he says, They have a zeal for God, but it is not according to knowledge. That's That's Israel. So the question we want to ask here in this message is, what do we learn about praying? What do we learn from Paul's praying for Israel? And I want to mention three things that I learn and that I think apply very directly to us. Number one, Paul's prayer for Israel is a global prayer. Two, Paul's prayer is an individual prayer. Three, Paul's prayer is a prayer for the effectual Working of God's saving grace. Now, let's take those one at a time, and I'll try to show you what I mean and where I get it. It is a global prayer. To see how this prayer is a global prayer, you have to understand how Israel fits into the global purposes of God in redemption. And to see that, let's go to chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Romans 11 25 and 26. Here he's talking to the Gentiles to whom he's writing and he says, Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brethren. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in. And so... All Israel will be saved. Now, what is this? God looked down in Genesis 11 on a rebellious world. Tower of Babel, dispersed nations. According to his sovereign decrees from all eternity, he set his favor on one man, Abraham, and called him to himself. He appointed that that man would be the father of of a nation, Israel, he gave that nation covenants, promises, revelations of his glory, revelations of his will, a system of sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins, and ultimately, the Messiah. And it's a story of failure. By and large, only a remnant from Israel believed the promises. And walked in the obedience of faith. And when the Messiah came, they rejected him. In mass. Except for a remnant. Paul and the disciples. They were all Jews. But by and large, when they made that decisive rejection, it says in this text, a hardening has come upon the part of Israel. And it means the, the major part of Israel. It will lie upon them until when? The full number of the Gentiles come in. What's that? 
Well, that's all the elect from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. The full number of the Gentiles gathered in all the people of God, all the sons of God scattered throughout the world, gathered in. And then Israel will be converted. You read in Zechariah, they will look upon him whom they've pierced. A spirit of supplication and prayer will be poured out upon them and a nation will be created as in a day. And that's what Paul is praying for. Let's look at another confirmation. Verses 30 to 31 of Romans 11. You'll see the exact same pattern of redemptive history in these verses. They're very complicated verses. The sentences are kind of interwoven. But if you go slowly, they're not beyond anybody's understanding. They're very straightforward, in fact. Just as you, that's Gentiles, just as you Gentiles were once disobedient to God, but now have received mercy, that is, the Great Commission has been given and the gospel has spread to Minneapolis, and we Gentiles have been folded into the family of redemption. Why has it happened? Because of their disobedience. You see, Israel disobeyed and rejected the Messiah. The mercy of God spilled over the banks of Israel, took shape in the Great Commission, reached all the way to America from Israel, and we're saved. That's the mercy to the Gentiles because of the disobedience of Israel. Now, that leaves Israel in a pretty bad plight, but we haven't gotten to verse 31 yet. Verse 31. So they have now been disobedient. Not without a purpose. In order that by the mercy shown to you in Minneapolis, as it were, they might receive mercy. When the full number of the Gentiles comes in, Israel will be saved. Do you see the pattern of redemption? It's a very roundabout pattern. God does not go the shortest distance between two points. Redemptive history is a very roundabout way of giving mercy. It's a strange thing we read about here. Who would have ever thought of such a plan of redemption? The disobedience of the Gentiles, then the disobedience of the Jews, mercy spilling over so that there could be mercy to the Gentiles, so that then there could be mercy to the Jews. My, isn't there a shorter way to show mercy to the world? No. Not if you understand the purposes of God to display the full character of his being in justice as well as mercy in a world where there is unbelief and sin. Paul's prayer now, oh God, save Israel, is a global prayer because you have to ask, well, how could he pray that prayer? If the full number of the Gentiles has to come in before they get saved. And the answer is. His prayer included a longing and a prayer for the ingathering of the nations. If I pray that my wife who's on a trip 
be with us, Carson, Benjamin, Abraham, and Barnabas, for supper tonight so that we can enjoy her party. I'm also praying that she have a safe trip home because it's included. It's a necessary prerequisite to her being there and sitting with us at the table. And so when Paul prays for the salvation of Israel, and then he tells us that it will be a hardened nation until the full number of the Gentiles come in, then he must also be praying for those Gentiles. And so it's a global prayer. It's a prayer that we ought to pray. We ought to pray this way. We ought to bow our heads every day and let God expand our hearts to embrace the world and say, Oh God, be pleased to raise your church to a quickened and awakened state so that they reach all the unreached peoples and all the full number of the Gentiles is gathered in and Israel is saved and the kingdom comes. Don't you pray the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come? What do you mean? Well, what you should mean is gather the full number in from the Gentiles, save Israel, come and close the age. That's what thy kingdom come means. And so pray globally. Don't just pray about your own little teeny weeny problems. God will heal many of those problems if you let your heart expand to embrace the globe. That's point number one. Second, it is an individual prayer as well, my prayer to them is for their salvation. My prayer for them is for their salvation. Romans chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, reveal this side of Paul's ministry. He's not only interested in that distant corporate conversion of Israel. He is interested in individuals to whom he ministers. Listen. 11.13, now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, why? In order to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Some of them. He is not only banking on the hope of the conversion of all Israels. He's banking on the fact that God in his mercy will save some whenever he preaches in the synagogues. Now, it's not written in this text or 10.1 that he prays for these individuals. That's my inference, and I just commend it to you. Wouldn't you agree that since he says he prays for Israel... And in these verses, it says his heart's desire is that every time he preaches, some, some would be saved. That on the night before he went into Thessalonica, where he preached in the synagogue the next morning, that he got down on his knees and he prayed like this. Oh, God of the nations, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, thy kingdom come, gather in the nations, get me to Spain, don't let it falter, gather in the nations, convert your people, close the age. And then he paused and he said, and tomorrow morning, I'm going into that synagogue. And would you save some tomorrow from your people? Don't you think he prayed like that? I can't help but think that he did. So it's an individual prayer. 
He's not just interested in that distant corporate conversion and all the things leading up to it. He's interested in tomorrow. Your mom and dad. Your son. Your neighbor. The one you're working with. That's point number two. It is an individual prayer. And the third point is this. It is a prayer for God's effectual saving work. Here's what I mean. He's not just praying that God would make Israel savable. Or he's not praying that God would make them able to save themselves. He's praying that God would save them. Let me show you what I mean by that. If you believe that God has the right and the authority to take out of a person a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, to grant that person repentance and a knowledge of the truth so that they might escape from the snare of the devil, To open the eyes of the blind so that they might see and be drawn to Jesus Christ. If you believe that God has that right and authority, that's the way you'll pray. You'll see God floating in his lifeboat out over the sea of dead humanity. And you will say, as you float there on the life raft that he gave you, Oh God, I can't reach the bottom of this ocean. Wouldn't know what to do with them if I could. Would you reach down there? And pull them up. And, oh, God, don't hang their arms over the edge of the boat and shout at them. They've been dead for a long time. Would you pull them up in the boat, slimy as they are, and do mouth-to-mouth and CPR? Or whatever you've got to do, save them, Lord. Don't toy with them. Save them. Isn't that the way you pray? I hope it is. But... If you don't believe God has the right, but that you must give to man the sovereign, self-determining power to be the decisive force in conversion, that man must have the authority and the right to populate heaven. And not God. You cannot pray for the conversion of sinners by God. You can't pray, God, please take out of his heart or out of his flesh the heart of stone. You can't pray, God, would you please put your spirit within him and cause him to walk in your statutes. You can't pray, God, would you grant repentance and a knowledge of the truth and draw him to yourself? Because if you pray that way, you give to God a right you have denied him and given to man. Namely, to be the arbiter in who gets saved. How do you pray if you insist on giving to man the power and authority of ultimate self-determination. How do you pray? Well, Dick Eastman is a person. We sold his book last year, The Hour That Changes the World. The last section of that book is dead wrong. The first part's great and very helpful. 
There's the closing section of that book that's called How to Pray for the Lost. Dick Eastman doesn't agree with me. I don't think he agrees with Scripture. He thinks that man has to have the ultimate power of self-determination when it comes to salvation. And so he says, well, then how do you pray for them? And his answer is, you pray that God would cause them to ask themselves six questions. And then he lists the questions, things like, um, whom can I trust? What is my purpose? When will I really be free? Why do people hate religion? How can I cope? Where will I go when I die? You pray that God would cause people to ask themselves these questions. And then just step back. Now, let me show you an illustration from a sentence of his why I regard that as completely unacceptable and inconsistent with biblical teaching. He says, for example, pray that God will plant in the hearts of these people an inner unrest together with a longing to know the truth. Close quote. Pray that God would plant a longing in their hearts. Now, here's my question to Dick Eastman. How strong of a longing should I pray for? There are two kinds of longings you could pray for. One is a longing that is so strong, it moves them to embrace Jesus and be saved. The other is a longing that's not strong enough to move them to embrace Jesus and be saved. Which do you pray for? If you pray for the longing that is effectual, you're giving to God the right of ultimate self-determination or the right of determining who will get saved. If you pray for the ineffectual, unsuccessful influence or longing, You're not praying for their conversion. You can't pray for God to convert sinners if you believe in ultimate self-determination. You may not like that. And I praise God that those of you who disagree still about this issue of God's sovereignty contradict yourselves when you pray, just like Dick Eastman does, I think. I bless God that, that we're in Consistent when it comes to living out false doctrine. The Bible teaches very plainly that God reigns. Paul doesn't leave any doubt in our minds as to what he thinks. Look at Romans 9, 16. Which of these two sides is he on? Does he believe God has the authority to determine who will populate his kingdom and praise him forever? Or does he believe that God simply waits and it stays in the authority of man who will populate the kingdom of God and what the chorus will look like that praises the Lord throughout all eternity? Romans 9:16. it depends not upon man's will or exertion, but upon God's mercy. That's plain. That's clear. Now, how does he pray then? He doesn't pray, God, kind of toy with them, kind of nuzzle up and then move back and move around and keep yourself clear. He says, save, save, save. Here's the way to pray. Go to the Bible, 
Find the promises of the new covenant and turn them into prayers like this. God, take out of their flesh the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh so that they feel something toward you. God, circumcise their hearts so that they love you. God, give them your spirit so that they walk in your statutes. God, grant them repentance and a knowledge of the truth so that they escape from the snare of the devil. Father, open their eyes where Satan is blinding them so that they see the irresistible beauty of Jesus Christ and freely choose it. Oh, I hope nobody comes to me after this service and say, what about choice? I know it's going to happen anyway. God works in such a way that people become reasonable, able to choose right, freely. And if he didn't work, everybody would use their wills to go to hell. So either you get God-saving sinners or everybody's lost. And so the third point is this prayer is an, a prayer for the effectual working of God's saving power. When Paul says, God save Israel, he means remove the hardness. And give them faith. That's their only hope. Now, I want to close with a challenge. My goal this morning is partly to teach you about prayer and about God's nature. But I am so interested, whether you pray consistently or inconsistently, that you pray this year at Bethlehem. And I think maybe the way I could motivate you, at least this is the way I get motivated, is to see what God's doing in response to prayer in the world and at Bethlehem. Let's just close by looking at some tremors in the world. And I shared some of these Friday night at the all-night prayer meeting. I want to share some about Bethlehem this morning in addition. Uh, David Bryant goes around uh, like a spiritual seismologist feeling tremors in the Christian church, trying to decide whether there's going to be an earthquake of spiritual awakening or not. And when you read books like World or magazines like World Christian, the Evangelical Missions Quarterly and the uh, Journal for International Frontier Missions and uh, all kinds of things, you, you get a record of God's tremors. And we ought to care about God's tremors in the world today. Let me list a few of them for you. And the question you should be asking as I list these is, why is this happening? What's going on in the world? This is, seems like to be a strange and unusual day in which we live. Consider Urbana. 18,000 students gathered at Urbana, December 1984. 83% of those students in 1984 signed cards that says they would be committed in some way to world missions. Three years earlier, half that percentage responded. Why? 
that dramatic doubling in three years. Second, in 1960, 25 years ago, 16,000 was the number of Protestant foreign missionaries going out from North America. Today, the number stands at 30,000. The four largest evangelical mission agencies, YWAM, Wycliffe, Southern Baptist, and New Tribes Mission, had 2,800 people in 1960, and today, 14,000. Why? That dramatic increase. Third, the non-Western receiving nations, where we've been sending missionaries for 150 years, have now become sending nations, many of them. So the 20% of the workforce in the mission uh, plan of God today is non-Western. And by 2000, it is predicted that 50% of the world missionary force will come from the once receiving countries. So this sort of geometric uh, increase of missionaries in the world. Fourth, brand new mission agencies are are springing up and growing at unbelievable rates. Take Frontiers, for example, a mission to Muslims. Two years ago, 1983 now, I guess, 1983, they had 20 people on the field, a brand new mission. Today, 103. And there are 600 people waiting to be accepted or assigned by this. A great new upsurge in missions to Muslims in the world. Why? What's happening? Fifth, enrollment at evangelical missions institutions is skyrocketing. Take the big five, Fuller, Gordon, Trinity, Wheaton, Columbia Bible College. In 1975, 400, less than 400 students in those mission programs. Today, over 1,200, 10 years later. Why? What does this mean? Where is this heading? Where is it coming from? Six, in 1963, 600 young people did uh, short-term mission projects in America, from America. Today, last year, 30,000 young people did short-term mission projects. What's going on? Seventh, South Korea, one-third of the population is evangelical. 6,000 churches in Seoul, Korea alone. The biggest Presbyterian, Methodist, and Pentecostal church in the world in that city. Six new churches every day planted in South Korea. What's going on in that country? Why? China. Between 1949 and the breakup or the opening of China, to our view, in the late 70s, the Christian community went under persecution from a million and a half to over 30 million. Why? And the list could go on and on. These are tremors, brothers and sisters. The earthquake may or may not be coming. That's God's business. But they are glorious tremors. And we should join the prayer force of the world to pray globally about what God is up to in the world. What about Bethlehem? Are there any tremors at Bethlehem that there might be minor earthquake on the way? I don't claim that there's any earthquake at Bethlehem. We on the inside see our warts and our failures perhaps more than anybody. But there are tremors. God is good. Let me mention a few. One, 
The ministry of prayer at Bethlehem has grown steadily, for which I bless God, because I think it's the cause of everything else under God. For example, growing out of last year's prayer week, a team emerged that has been faithful almost every day to have somebody praying at 7 a.m. in the room. There's a room, a prayer room, the upper room right behind that wall there. There is praying during many of our services by these faithful people. I invite you to join the prayer team. Contact me if you don't know who to contact. Last Friday night, we started these all-night prayer meetings three years ago, four years ago. This is the fifth one we've had, and we had one on a mid-year. So there were, there were four. The first one was 60 people. The second one, I think, was 90 Last year, I think there was a little over 100, and about 160 people were here to pray all night, Friday night. That's that's the encouraging thing. It's the steadiness of the prayer movement. More people finished praying all night last Friday than started three years earlier. God is honoring this prayer movement. Second, The international students' ministry flourished and came out of nowhere this year, as it were. And retreats were held, and an international house was rented. And I'm praying that that won't be lost. Some of you men will work with these young students and get that house, lest it be sold to somebody else. Third, instead of sending out 15 on schedule under the auspices of 90 by 90, we sent out 21 young people in short term or vocational missions or ministries. Fourth, the monthly prayer Frontier Fellowship was begun every fourth Wednesday on Wednesday night at part of the prayer meeting. Fifth, Noel and I were invited and you gave us the privilege to minister for six weeks in Cameroon and Liberia. Sixth, Steve and Susan felt the touch of God to call them to a year in Cameroon to teach and they'll leave this August, Lord willing, and teach for a year on the mission field and then what will they bring back to us when they come? Seventh, the perspectives class was offered again. We prayed for 80. God gave 80 people from around the Twin Cities to meet here every Monday night and study God's world Christian movement. Eighth, I was elected to the Foreign Mission Board of the Baptist General Conference. And the reason I mention it is because that's going to have repercussions here on our focuses and our uh, way of going about things. And ten, God put it in your hearts to meet a budget... Last year, that was an increase of 35% over the year before, and to which everybody was throwing up their arms and saying, well, I shouldn't say everybody. Some people were throwing up their arms and saying, fiscally irresponsible, this is out of the question, 35% increase in one year. And almost to the penny, the Lord brought it in. Why? What's he trying to say? These are tremors. This is no earthquake. We mustn't delude ourselves. The number of people being converted through Bethlehem is shamelessly small. And all I can say for myself is I'm sorry, God, for whatever I'm doing wrong. Or if there's anything, help me to see it. Grant, O God, that we be patient and send the awakening. And so my plea and my challenge to you, don't you want to be a part of something great that God is doing in the world Pray globally. Oh, Lord, bring in the full number of the Gentiles. Save your people, Israel. Maranatha.
Come, Lord Jesus. Pray individually. You know many people in your surroundings that need Christ. Pray for them. And pray for Bethlehem. Put Bethlehem on your list. Write it on your hand. Put it on your mirror. Put it on your bathroom wall. Pray, God, send the earthquake to Bethlehem. And keep us faithful until you do. Let me close with this paragraph from George Mueller. You know who George Mueller is? The the man who built the orphanages in England and was a great man of faith. But not always roses in George Mueller's life. My final admonition to you is please don't grow weary in praying for the lost. Write down your dad's name, cousin, fellow worker, neighbor, and pray for 20 years. Listen to this. I am now in 1864 waiting upon God for certain blessings for which I have daily besought him for 19 years, six months, without one day's intermission. Anybody say that about anything here? I'll bet some of you can. Still, the full answer is not yet given concerning the conversion of certain individuals. In the meantime, I have received many, thousands, says thousands of answers to prayer. I have also prayed daily without intermission for the conversion of other individuals about ten years, for others six or seven years, for others four, three, and two years, and for others about eighteen months, and still the answer is not yet granted concerning these persons for whom I have prayed 19 and a half years. Yet, I am daily continuing in prayer and expecting the answer. Be encouraged, dear Christian reader, with fresh earnestness to give yourself to prayer if you can only be sure that you ask for things that are for the glory of God. Be encouraged, dear Christian, to keep on praying. Thomas Goodwin wrote a book called The Return of Prayers in which he said something that has helped me so much. No prayers for the ingathering of God's people, the spread of the gospel, the close of the age are wasted because they go up into heaven like an aroma. They distill in the grace of God. They drip down into bottles and in God's due time, he pours them out on the church for awakening. He pours them out on the nations to be ingathered. He will pour them out on Israel to be converted. No prayer is wasted if we keep on praying and do not lose heart. Let's stand for closing prayer. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, I want to be a faithful praying pastor until the earthquake comes. Help me not to be discouraged, but to keep looking at grace abounding grace for sinners like us and to draw my joy and my strength from you and not from circumstances. And I pray that same thing for people here because many of them face discouraging circumstances much worse than mine. Oh, be their portion, Father. May they not grow weary in well-doing or in praying. 
And may they have ringing in their ears that spectacular promise. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, will not I, your heavenly Father, give good things to those who ask me? Help us to ask globally. Help us to ask for Bethlehem and help us to ask for the next 20 years for that precious individual. And all the people said, Amen.